Welcome to Riding Unicorns, the podcast that celebrates high growth businesses and the people behind them. This episode is with Jeff Kaliski, CEO of Cedars. Cedars is one of the leading crowd equity funding platforms in Europe. Thanks so much for coming on, Jeff. Real pleasure, James. Nice to see you again and, uh, and thanks for the time. Great. So can you explain to us your career today, what you've done and how you ended up at Cedars? My life started really as a tech guy from the very beginning. So I was a nerd back in the 80s when it was definitely not cool to be a nerd. And my career trajectory was really starting as a software guy, having a traditional career in corporates like IBM, consulting period with AT Kearney, again, working with a lot of tech companies on that journey until I did my first startup, which was Multimap in the first internet bubble. And that was typical uh, six people in a windowless office in Covent Garden trying to take advantage of what was happening at the time. Nine months later, the internet bubble burst. There was a global economic recession and there was no funding available. So that was a fantastic time to have left a high paid consulting career. But fast forward and we made it. It was one of the, the best times looking back where really had to work hard on bringing like my consulting experience, my tech experience, my sales experience to get through that. So in the end, best time to take market share is during a recession. We did that. And by 2003, with everything having collapsed in 2001, we had no competition in the UK. We had survived um, without doing any layoffs. We'd survived in the end by 2008. We'd grown the company to about 120 people in the US, in Asia, and, and Europe, and were acquired by Microsoft, where I then uh, was asked to run the um, local search and mapping division, commuting between London and Seattle, which was great for Air Miles. And actually, it was a really great uh, team in Microsoft. So it was a fantastic time. After a number of years, I left that largely because of the commute, and then did another transformation project to move a company from a traditional retail to a digital business in photography and leisure. And I was introduced to Cedars really at the tail end of that journey. And by the time I met Jeff Lynn, who was the founder of Cedars, I had now had three businesses where I had stepped in, where the fundamental mission was about introducing an entirely new product category. And when I met with Jeff Lynn and looking at the democratization of investment into private businesses through a platform as something that was quite disruptive and changing an industry that's not changed in over a hundred years, you kind of thought, what a great opportunity to apply my background and experience to a domain that I hadn't really been in before. And a lot of the work that Jeff did at the beginning of his journey with Cedars, which was really back in 2009, 2010, I thought was incredibly thoughtful and really thought about scalability of crowdfunding from the beginning. And therefore I could work with a, a sound founder and based business. Yeah. Did you get to meet Bill Gates? I didn't get to meet Bill Gates, unfortunately. I met Steve Ballmer. But what I can tell you is that there was a point in time, can I tell you this? Yeah, I'll tell you anyway. There was a point in time where multi-map acquisition by Microsoft got stuck. And apparently there was an email from the lead in Microsoft to Bill Gates, who at this point was chair of Microsoft and, and was, is a big mapping fan. Like he's, he's a huge map fan. And so therefore he was always involved at arm's length of the projects that Microsoft was involved in the mapping. Um, and there was an email effectively to Bill saying, we're stuck. And so apparently a, a phone call later, and it was unstuck. So Bill directly intervened in the acquisition of Multimap 
And then when it was concluded, as I was driving with Eric Jorgensen in London, who was the lead vice president in charge of the acquisition, he kind of pulled out his phone and he showed me the congratulatory email from Bill Gates on our deal. So whilst I didn't get to meet him personally, he was directly involved. He had his fingerprints uh, on it, which is, which is nice given the, the number of things that Microsoft was doing at the time. Yeah. And how did the conversation to sell the business to Microsoft actually start? Well, it's a great story in the sense that it's one of the classic ways acquirers get comfortable with a target business, which is we were approached in 2005. And in that approach, effectively, it was very simple. I had a phone call. Microsoft was interested in growing in Europe, thought we had uh, made some good progress and was interested in acquiring us and would we be interested in having a conversation. So we had a few conversations in 2005 and some reasonably large meetings and then it just went quiet and the message was effectively, actually, we think we will continue and compete with you. And so from 2005 to 2007, that's what happened. So Microsoft then armed themselves and tried to have a go at entering Europe directly. They had already acquired Vicinity, which was a US-based mapping company that had had some success in Europe. In the end, we got a call in 2007, which effectively said, really respect what you've managed to achieve. We have been unsuccessful at establishing a beachhead, and therefore we were wondering if you would entertain an acquisition discussion again to be the beachhead for Microsoft in Europe. We were in the middle of a fundraising process at the time. So we were doing our Series B. And so we basically ran a dual track process. We said, you know what, you know, really interested in what you have to say. And we always had great respect for Microsoft, but we also wanted to maintain our mission. And so we ran a dual track process, an acquisition auction process and a, and a fundraising. And at the tail end of that process, Microsoft was by far the, the best path for the business. It was quite rewarding, both the honesty with which they approached us the second time around and what that meant to them in terms of us being the beachhead for Europe, a mission that they had to try to really own mapping in the industry. Later, you, you joined Cedars and you replaced the founder as the CEO. I know you work very closely together still and he's the chairman. So how did that come about and how does that relationship work? There's an email that I sent Jeff Lynn at some point in the sort of courtship of, are we going to do this together? I said, I really need to know if you're sticking around or leaving. Because if you're leaving, then I'm really not interested. Whereas I think there's, there's a number of times when, you know, there's a tension where the person coming in doesn't want the founder around, wants to own the whole thing. And actually, one of the things that I really enjoy is uh, the energy, the passion, the commitment that a founder has and making sure that's not lost in the transition. And then the idea was that I was always to be the CEO, but it made sense for Jeff not to take that risk as a starting. In fact, he, he wrote a very uh, a good blog about kind of his thinking behind uh, the process of hiring somebody and then seeing how it's gonna work. So the, the intention was within a year, if everything works out, if we like each other, the chemistry works, then I would be appointed CEO. Three months after I joined, Jeff sat down with me and said, I'm fine. I'm happy to, I'm happy with this. So I think we were having coffee in, in a restaurant and he just sort of dropped it on me and I'm like, great. And then within two months I was appointed CEO. And then it was really about the relationship growing through the stages. My style very much is that to involve, in this case, Jeff, as much as possible, because if we are aligned, 
then it just helps with every step of the way. And I think the chemistry was actually very easy with Jeff. And one of the things that I respected and appreciated very much is he always would participate in discussions or decisions, but was very comfortable in saying, this is my view, but it's JK's decision. Because we're both named Jeff, I'm referred to as JK. Yeah. So that division was brilliant and and we have worked well throughout. Just a short interruption to talk about our sponsor, Deck Dolphin. Deck Dolphin is an anonymous marketplace with VCs helping founders to improve their pitch deck so they have a better chance of converting outreach into phone calls and meetings with investors. They got in touch after one of my posts on LinkedIn. So if you're a founder and you're raising money, go to deckdolphin.com and use discount code UNICORN10. Back to the episode. And how do you see the importance of crowdfunding within the general fundraising ecosystem? And how do you think that has changed in the last few years? So that's a a great question because I, I almost want to give you some context as to how we think about it. And in many ways, that was very much a question I asked Jeff. I think From very early days, the intention was to create an investment platform, a platform where we can introduce transparency and liquidity for both investors and entrepreneurs. It's important to look after both sides. I think there was really an intention of trying to be an investment platform where eventually there would be a secondary market and eventually there would be institutional participation and and a path which would start to look like a public version for a private market. And that was the start point. And we went from a position of, I think in the first year, funding half a dozen businesses. And last year we funded 250. How important does crowdfunding play as an entry level for people to start learning about investing and becoming an angel investor or maybe even a VC later in their life? Yeah, very much so. And I think that touches on something that's often overlooked and is actually very important, which is, it's not until you start using something and you start engaging with it that you're able to learn how to get good at it. It's very easy to look at some of the unicorns that are out now. There was no way for the retail investor to have ever gotten to play and invest in, for example, a Facebook. And now there is. And of course, we've now seen that in spades. There are plenty from the Revoluts, the Monzos of the world, and many others. But I think one of the, the important things about our job in this space in establishing trust and credibility is the importance that this is a high-risk asset class. The angels who do this for a living have become good at what they do because they understand the challenges in the selection process and seeing the business and understanding it. And it isn't you know, a place to, to, to save your money and certainly not an area to maybe hopefully pick one and then you're successful. I think one of the really great things about a a secondary market and everything's under a nominee and we capture all the data is we actually have a a history of investments through the life of all the investments since we started since 2012. And what we saw was actually portfolio theory works. Even in private at this level, the math tests out. So for investors who have larger portfolios, for investors who, you know, have, you know, invested in five businesses or 10 um, or 15 or 20, actually their IRR tends to be higher. And if you look at some of our previous portfolio reports that we've produced uh, each year, you'll see that if you had invested on everything on our platform, 
from the beginning, you'd be looking at a sort of somewhere between a 10 and a 12% IRR. But those who have diversified portfolios and have kind of built up a skill set in this, the top quartile of investors on Cedars are making an IRR of 32 to 34%, and that's pre-EIS, and the top 10% are north of 50%. And so I think to get to your question, what partially excites us here is, is that as long as we're providing the right guardrails and the right education and the right messaging to help people on the journey of learning about investing. And by having a secondary market, also creating an exit point sooner than most startups need to, to finish their journey. And when you make an angel investment, it could be a five-year, could be a seven-year, could be a 10-year commitment. But with a secondary market, we actually start to create a safety valve for people who need that money out earlier, or if there's a big exit while the company is going through its stages. I think Revolut's a classic case of that. And that's all part of this building this, this wider market and then educating. I think one of the areas that was missing is bring a, building a community around investors and encouraging greater communication and knowledge sharing. Yeah. So the secondary market is a significant shift in terms of liquidity for early stage investment as an asset class. What are the shifts? What's changed that has allowed the secondary market to come into existence? Why hasn't it existed earlier? Yeah. This is one of the areas that I get super jazzed about because it's super nerdy. The real challenge with secondary market is that with direct investment, when you've made investments, if you want to sell your shares, then that's a process where you need permission. There might be preemption rights on for other people. The share register needs to be updated with the new buyer. So it's a very complex and fragmented process for individuals who have direct ownership into businesses. Because one of the things that Jeff did at the very beginning, and when I talked earlier about almost architecting a scalable solution from the start, is he did everything under a nominee which was quite new. And I think he was only disappointed because he would talk about a nominee, which for most people is super boring. But what it enabled is it meant that within the nominee, we could facilitate trades. So we could build a technology stack on top of that, which would enable people to trade within any business because we had that framework in place. Then we could, with that technology stack, we could allow trades to happen immediately or within 24 hours, for example. And so what that meant was that when we launched in, I think it was June 26, 2017, all businesses that had ever raised with Cedars and their investors could trade on the secondary market. It respected the nominee. All other platforms facilitated direct, and therefore they didn't have the rights to allow trades to take place. So nobody could do it except on a one-by-one basis. And the cool thing about this is the fact that this meant that on day one, any of those businesses could trade on our secondary market. And so in software terms, that's being backwards compatible to your first release, which generally is a very hard thing to do. I remember on that Tuesday that we launched, I think 40% of all of the lots that were on sale sold within the first hour. It was very popular. 
and little by little it's grown. So since that day, we have over 25,000 investor exits. People often talk about this space from the perspective of business exits, which is a hard thing to do. It doesn't happen very often. It's obviously a big deal and is a great thing for many businesses. But actually, we've had thousands and thousands um, of investor exits on during that time. I think it's been over 8 million pounds of shares traded on our secondary market over that time. And it's really starting to accelerate now as people have getting, gotten and as more businesses have gone through it. Yeah. Will the reliance on the nominee structure restrict it from being available to all businesses in the future? Or will you always have to have seeders as a nominee to facilitate secondary market? We're just in the process of opening up our secondary market to allow businesses to use it who haven't necessarily raised with us. The easy way to do that is to bring those businesses or to bring a piece of them under the nominee. So there's Uh, effectively two products. One's called Direct to Nominee, which allows people to effectively bring shares into a nominee structure, which then allows the trades to take place. And then there's another one, which actually is based on customer feedback, which we're now working on with a client, uh, which is effectively Direct to Market. So this is where actually I, I don't necessarily want to be in the nominee. I just want to sell, but I want to know that I've got a deal done. And so we've built that capability and that's something that we're launching uh, in a couple months time. The other way that we're we're looking at doing it is we've partnered, you've probably seen with uh, CapDesk, um, who are a cap table management tool. And that's increasingly part of, if you like, the, the long-term vision is that everything that we've built, we built on an API stack to make it consumable by other fintech platforms. And so this is one where, you know, if you've got investments in a business that are using CapDesk as its cap table management tool, you can log in, you can see your share allocation. And effectively, what we're doing is we're adding a sell button. Yeah. So then suddenly you have a sell button inside a cap table management tool where you can then transact onto the Cedars platform. And that's the announcement that we did earlier this year. Unfortunately, there isn't a one size fits all. So we've got a number of initiatives to try to make it as easy as possible for businesses that haven't raised with us to then uh, use our secondary market. Yeah, that's a great partnership with CapDesk. Really interesting tool for, for any founders that want to better structure um, <laughs> their cap table and, and just keep a track of it and manage it over time. So it's really interesting that you guys have seen the opportunity to bring those two offerings together. Cedars and Crowdcube, they dominate the market share of equity crowdfunding in the UK. So how significant is the merger in terms of developing that secondary market further? And what was the main appeal to Cedars for doing a merger with Crowdcube? Yeah, so I guess the first thing I'd say is that if you like our frame of reference is, is that broader investment in private companies marketplace rather than crowdfunding specifically. If you like pre-crowdfunding, you basically had private equity, you had venture capitalists and angels that have been around for a very long time. And I think with crowdfunding, there was an opportunity to use technology to create a transparent platform to facilitate transactions and, and our vision as I mentioned earlier, was always that it would eventually be investors from retail through to institutional and entrepreneurs from seed to pre-IPO. And so the market that we're looking at is the sort of 12 billion pound marketplace of investing in private companies in the UK. And then we can set aside international for the time being. So in that sense, crowdfunding, we collectively represent 2% of that market. And so we've got a long way to go before 
I feel like I could use the word dominate or dominant or anything like that. We're so far away from that. In terms of crowdfunding as a tool or a fundraising vehicle, so we too are the most advanced in doing so. We've each built up complementary strengths. By working together, actually, we think we can then deliver far more value to the investor community through tools, greater transparency, through greater deal flow, and just do so faster. Absolutely. And so do you agree with the statement that there's never been a better time to be an early stage investor? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I do, actually. Uh, I do. And I I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think one one is that you have an ecosystem which is growing and people like yourselves, where there's a real connection with the investor in terms of purpose. And and there's a lot of purpose-driven investing. And, And particularly now, in the next five to 10 years, millennials, Millennials will be more than 50% of the adult population, and they absolutely control their own destiny. They want in their hand, they will manage their finances. So that is happening. That's a train that's left the station and isn't going to change. And we have an opportunity with the tools to be able to, to, to make it a far more useful and transparent. And, and, and our goal is, to, is, is in building trust. If we can create a trusted environment and then do that cross-border, then I think we think it's not only good for each national economy and the participation of of its local investor base in the businesses that support it in a societal sense in actually creating understanding across borders. If If you are working in a trusted market and you invest in a business in another country, then actually that's a, that's connected tissue that, that goes beyond your own kind of knowledge base. And we think that understanding will, create more of a a positive sense of contribution to to society. So we think the mission is very big and we think that now is a a great time for investors. And I think the last thing I would say on that is that we live in uncertain times. We've seen it in the UK. You can tell from my accent, I'm from the US. You've seen it in the US. And I think that I've often been asked by journalists with all this uncertainty, isn't it a bad time supporting high-risk businesses? And I said, actually, it is times of uncertainty that breed entrepreneurs. Absolutely, entrepreneurs thrive in uncertainty because they find ways through. Many of the great um, businesses of, of today were founded during times of uncertainty in the last crash or previously. So actually, I think now is a, a great time for investing in this asset class. Well, I think that is a great note to end on there, Jeff. And I'll add the disclaimer that all capital is at risk. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your riding unicorn story and for giving us deeper insight into the merger and how the secondary market is developing and its significance for early stage investing and and entrepreneurs as well. Thanks, James. Real pleasure. What a great episode there with Jeff. He's so knowledgeable about early stage crowdfunding and funding in general. It was really interesting insight and it was really great to interview him. I do 100% agree with him that there has never been a better time to invest in early stage tech companies, particularly in the UK with the unfair advantage around open banking and health tech and other sectors where we just seem to be creating great businesses led by brilliant founders and the access to 
capital and talent here is second to none in Europe. Uh, Also, with the looming capital gains tax issues in the UK, EIS investment has never been more attractive. Uh, So capital is at risk. But if anyone's interested in finding out more, please let me know. Next episode is going to be with Hector Mason from Episode One Ventures. They are a leading B2B early stage investor. Hector is one of the rising stars in the venture space in the UK. So I'm really looking forward to sharing his story about how he got into venture and what he's up to at the moment. Please do like, share, subscribe, follow, etc. And uh, see you again next time.